first of all, in the morning, we're supposed to meet at TUC. The police went there in their numbers, they gathered there in their numbers to wait for us. I don't know what they thought was going to happen. When people, 4am, at 4am, they were at TUC waiting for us to do what? When people need the police, you're calling them because some armed robbers are in your house. They can't even turn up. But on Yemabi Savior, they've managed to find the time and the energy and the resources to gather themselves. Look at us. How many of us are there? Why do you need that level of aggression at the gates when we've been called to come to court? I mean, we are not armed. We don't have anything with us. We are just coming in as a normal people. And we saw other groups coming in. It could be family of five or four. And they were just coming. And then you said, fix the country. Let me meet you outside. You pull all of us outside. And the next thing is, I won't allow you to enter. You know, because you have representatives in there. So we were like, our representatives were not set. We were set. And the last time you were in court, the judge did make it clear that if you do not have the conveners here in court, I will not sit on the case. So how do you stop us and insist that our representatives are in? You know, and they manhandled her. How can you be pulling her and pushing her? Now, despite a pending case at the High Court, the Fix the Country protesters today chalked a major legal victory. They had been indefinitely barred by the Accra, by the Accra High Court from staging a street protest till COVID-19 restrictions on public gathering are lifted. Their lawyers described this as unlawful and proceeded to seek the intervention of the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has upheld their contention. Hello and welcome to Our Culture, a podcast about media, culture and politics. My name is Nikote Nikwe. This is part one of our discussion with Oliver Bakavomowo. He joins us to discuss his recent article published on Ghana Law Hub and broader issues of the law in public discussions. The article titled, Flabbing One's Line, Revisiting Fix the Country's Horrid Day at the Ghana Supreme Court, offers a critical examination of a Supreme Court decision that quashed the High Court injunction against the social movement Fix the Country and their planned demonstration. Oliver identifies as a critical legal researcher and has recently been involved in mobilizing with Fix the Country as one of its conveners. We begin discussing the tragic incidents that unfolded in Nigeria, first with the tragic killing of Ibrahim Kaka Mohammed and the subsequent protests that were demanding for accountability and justice that led to the military shooting into the crowd and killing two more civilians and wounding several others. Welcome, welcome. Um, Oliver, how are you doing? Exhausted, but still alive. So that's a starting point. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, can, I can tell, I can tell. Um, it's, it's been a rough few days, um, especially thinking about what's happening in Jira, um, what happened to, to Kaka as well, um, and thinking about, you know, the role of um, activists or citizens, to be specific, right, um, who dare to hold those in public office accountable. I want to I just share, share a few minutes of, of what you think or how you feel about what's happened. You, you know, when, when the, he was first drawn to my attention, this was immediately after he had been, he had been attacked, and one of the fighters, uh, Abeku Adams, who is actually in Nigeria today, had sort of shared the images and talked about it. My first reaction was obviously, wait, should we verify that was he, in fact, because he had already made a linkage between Fix the Country and what had happened. So my initial reaction was, I know how the media space is going to react to this. And so let's verify this. And we did that. And the weird thing, the way it hit me was, after we had gone through all that conversation, and the minute we had the go clear to say something online and try to raise some public support for him, like barely one minute between that and we had the statement, then the message came, he just he just passed. And and so that emotionally hits me in like a very terrible place, right? And 
but not it was only i think when we're doing the press conference after we had issued the statement that i was surprised i mean to see my emotion get away of me and tearing up in the in the process of it you know and i i think there was something that ras ras bamba who's personally close to him had said that in that moment it just kind of hit me in a very raw emotional place but i think the systemic response to it has also been very frustrating to me and i'm actually writing a piece now talking about journalists and sort of the fixation on is is he a fix the country member that this whole conversation that's what is being the circus around this whole conversation i'm trying to and I'm putting that together, which I'm releasing out today. And I just, I just don't know why there's sort of a reflex or a tendency to always, you know, minimize deaths and trivialize lives in, in the way we do, especially people who have political platforms, right? Because what he was doing was a political platform. He's speaking and talking about political issues. So I, I do hope he provides some window for accountability. And, and we have to be strategic in how we bring in all the other conversations about police brutality and all of that and how to leverage this as a huge moment. And not isolate the issues and make it only about one individual person, as the system would like to do. I do hope that we have the strength and 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 the capacity to withstand and have the honest conversation that it would it should engender. Right, and I I, I always say like one death is just too much, right? One one um, allowable death because there's there's a way in which our system is built to allow particular types of people to die. Um, if, if you do a critical assessment of what happened, right, from the shooting to the way the people were carried to the hospital to the services at Ijira, I mean, you could, you could essentially find everything that is wrong <laughs> systemically with the country kind of encapsulated in the incident that happened. Um, and so I'm hoping that um, we use this moment to really kind of demand accountability. One of the things I really want to get to the bottom of is how many people our security forces have killed? And it's 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 an answer that I help I I feel like will help us get some idea of the extent of this violence. One of the things that came out of the Black Lives Matter movement was that the federal government was not systematically collecting data on police violence, right? On police violence, especially yeah. people who were killed. And then the Guardian started doing it on their own, and then some some young teenager also I think believed also started collecting it from new sources. But essentially, one of the things that came out of Black Lives Matter was the systematic collection of this data to really make the point that, you know, X number of people have been killed, right? And what does that mean for the state to exactly... I mean, I'm far I'm accumulating a lot of RTI rights information requests. And intuitively for me is that let's do one. And they let them tell is that they have nothing. And then, you know, use that to mobilize, right? And use that to seek reform. So perhaps that's something which I should add to the growing list of the zillions. Yes, in <laughs> fact, it was one of my... It was going to be one of my one of my suggestions that we should do an RTI. <laughs> we should do an RTI. I know uh, Justice Tankaby, a uh, criminologist at Cambridge, is is trying to collect that data personally. And when I interviewed him on one of my podcast episodes, he did talk about reaching out to the police and actually trying to ascertain that number. And he said it's either they are collecting it and don't want to make it public or or they don't collect it. That's the thing. Because we have we it's a tendency to aggregate data and and, and processing data that we don't have. So it's plausible that obviously there will be incident reports. But as to whether or not this is feeding into any particular system that gives policy clarity 
I I don't know. What we can only find out, hey. So one of the things I've noticed about the way the state operates is that it's able to obfuscate accountability by saying there's no evidence when it actively does not collect that evidence. We saw it in COVID. There's no evidence for this, but they never they're not aggressively doing it. There's no evidence. It's such a mechanism of of obfuscation that it's so that, it's we're so talking evident. about law and stuff, right? But let, so let me just probably start nodding. Yes. Direction. See what happened in in exactly. the Achimota case. The attorney general goes to court and answers, mm-hmm. argues that the 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 students have no capacity to bring the action because they haven't accepted it. They haven't even accepted the admission. But the state was denying them their yeah. admission. So it's like you're going in a secular argument where you're refusing to give the person admission. You're saying that they are not a yet a student and can't bring the action because they haven't precisely accepted the admission that you have withheld from them. Uh, I think fundamentally when we start talking about legality, it, it becomes, especially in Ghana and especially in public discourse, you know, the matter of language sort of comes up. So it was interesting to me, especially in this, in this your piece that we're about to discuss um, on the Supreme Court decision um, for Fix the Country. Um, and then and the injunction that the police uh, went to procure ex party or without um, your, our presence. Um, so in the piece, you know, you start with language and specifically you discuss in the way the law is discussed in public and also amongst lawyers, right? And I was wondering, why did you find it necessary to make that p- point? And what, what, what are some of your observations about the current state of the legal community, especially on this question of discussing, making the law accessible, right, uh, to the public? You know, so there was a point where I think some years ago, I got notified on, on Facebook of a post I put up, I think, many years ago when I was, when I was a law student. And it was one of those posts you share mindlessly about and I think it's very popular among law students. Do not confuse your Google, your Google with my law degree and things like that. And I, and I was so absolutely horrified with myself, right? Like, I'm like, what the fuck is this? But there's a certain, <laughs> like, there's a certain claim to legitimacy and some set of, you know, preserve of law that we, we pride ourselves in. That when you go into the law school, no, you cannot take torture because it's, under, it's not below your profession. You cannot do this. You cannot do that. And you have to keep a certain class. And there's, there's already enforced distancing that must happen between you, the person, professional, and the people and who you serve. And there's a lot of that, right? We package them and we call them professionality. Then, then there's the content and the subject of law itself. And it's become so important to us to, to always say that a person is unlearned and we are learned. And, and that's learned, mis, I don't know, mis, mischief becomes our way of which we, you know, we remove people from the conversation. So when you look at, for instance, what happened in the Supreme Court conversation that happened when the NDC went to, to the Supreme Court over the election petition, a lot of the conversation about people commenting on what the court was doing was that you are not legally competent to comment on what the judges are doing. You don't have the legal tools and what to decipher what is going on. And it was weird to me because lawyers had kind of, you know, tried to make it so exclusive as this is our workplace and we are only are competent to do that. And losing the bigger picture of the fact that, no, these are legal institutions serving people, right? These are state institutions, public institutions funded by public. And then they have the right to directly comment on what those people are doing in their name. And you cannot claim some level of uh, exclusive professional control over the process that only you can be able to comment. So that's one of the things I've been thinking about generally. 
And as I started to write this piece, this was much more even a critique to myself because my, my academic writing tends to be very, very abstract. I just, I just, really, I just released a, an article that was published by the UCLA where I'm talking about anthropomorphism and uh, what, man, it was like, a, it was a mouth, it's a mouthful, you know? And even I sent it to a, lot, a number of my legal friends and nobody wants to touch it because there's a lot of philosophy and what the hell. So that's kind of how my writing generally is. I've written for the Ghana Law Hub in the past before, uh, where it was, for a lot of people, it was inaccessible. So it's how do I make this conversation accessible, especially as I've become, I'm doing a different part of academic or intellectual engagement, which is mobilizing, which is a very intellectual process. And so, and the audiences must be brought into the conversation, not because they're not intellectual enough, but because we've created language and tools, you know, certain tools that displace them from the conversation. So that's what I try to do in this piece albeit very unsuccessfully, especially towards the end, where it becomes very dense, you know? But I'm hoping that I continue to improve. Yes. <laughs> I, I'm hoping that I continue to improve as I'm working on that journey for myself and trying to make the conversation more and more accessible to people to jump in and understand what went wrong. Right. But, but yeah, but the language of governance is already inaccessible in many fronts, if you think about it, especially when it's actually a, a lot of it has to do with law and policy. Right. And it's in English. Um, I think about how parliament is just English, English, English. Um, I think about how budgets are read in English. Everything. The government essentially does not make an attempt to embrace the multicultural linguistic character of the country. Um, and then English becomes this mechanism of exclusion on its own. So even if the language is made accessible in English, English still becomes that exclusionary space as well. And so one of the things I've been, I've been hoping for, for folks to do, especially in moving towards building platforms to engage, is to think about how we can make these platforms inherently multilingual where people don't feel like they need to express themselves in a particular language, but then there are sort of systems in place that allow some form of translation, right, and to allow uh, a sort of multilingualism to, to happen. Not to cut you and perhaps to jump a bit, a little point on this. The, so the whole, I remember there was a point where, I, I don't know what we were doing, where there was a whole conversation about translating what we were doing in so many Ghanaian languages. And somebody had said something to me which I missed. And I think that we do not think about this enough in terms of when we are writing or reading or translating. Is that so often the people who are already literate to read the local languages can read English already. So it talks about the failure of the state to differently literalize people where people can read and you know, be able to engage in written content outside of that. So it becomes that all our media specifically those who are attending, if you take a dome and all of those people who have platforms which they engage in the local language, their online presence and a written work is English, right? Like it's not, it doesn't become tree or any of the other languages they use. Um, but yeah, it's a fair point. Right. And they, and they typically just regurgitate other platforms content <laughs> they, they they typically don't have original content so if you if you read their online presence it's one of the weakest parts of their media work it, it, it's very shallow not engaging uh, at all 
Um, yeah, but you know the the question, you know, and my mother writes very good guy, right? And and her generation, it seems like they were really trained to actually be very literate in the language itself. Uh, I notice also that a church does well in terms of being very literate in some of the indigenous languages that we have, but it, that doesn't seem to translate into a lot of um, policy spaces as well. So the question of language is something that's really dear to my heart. So I appreciate that you started with that. But one of the things you, <laughs> one of the things you also say in your piece, which I found striking, and you know, is the idea that, and I'm quoting you here. You say, "quote For those who had lost their sense of belief about what institutionally is what is institutionally possible in Ghana, this was a needed assurance of the justice of our cause. More importantly." It was an it was an affirmation of their voices, a reminder that their dreams were valid and that maybe Ghana could work after all. Could you briefly reflect on the implications of the statement, right? Um, also, the assumptions that kind of underpin the statement, and where do you think a lot of this sort of public distrust about the judicial process? sort of comes in? You know, one of the things that I noticed immediately in the whole conversations about going to court and going to the Supreme Court and all of that is that everybody said it didn't make sense. Like, everybody said, why are you wasting your time? Like, nothing is going to come out of the process. You're never going to win. All of that, right? And it's coming from a grounded place. And when this happened and the news kind of came up, Everybody was just reinvigorated and yes, we did it. So my, my sense of, and why I wrote that was, perhaps in the reaction to what happened prior to going to court, you know, that a lot of the people who were, who were speaking and talking to us felt that, why are you going to a, a place where you're never going to win? Why it is, it's impossible for you to, to get anything out of that process and anything. And a lot of them... Perhaps many of them have never even interacted with the courts before. And they have never gone to court before. But they are, translation, they are translating or expressing their reality of institutions generally in the country, right? And, and I'm not saying this not to shield the courts itself, because, I mean, God knows I've been a big critic of the court. But I also realize that we are failing to see the interconnections and people do not, you know, shield... Sh- sh- cut off certain institutions and say this institution is completely fine in Ghana and there's nothing wrong. Like their whole frustration about the system affects all institutions that represent that system. And I understand that. And of course, the court has also been part of the problem. So when this happened, it was beyond just the court. And I was talking about what is institutionally possible to mean not just the judiciary itself, but what we can do broadly. Because then people felt really, you know, there was a sense of, you know, energy burst around, we can do this. Yes, this is a big victory. And we're not saying a big victory in terms of you've won a legal case, but you've won something in the system that really gives you anything. You know, and so that's kind of what I was, that's what a sentiment I was kind of remarking and, and trying to convey inelegantly in, in that. Yeah, I mean, when I read that, I was like, does this really give us hope? <laughs> that was my sense, right? I, I was like, this doesn't, because the reason we are there in the first place is that we, procedures have been used to carry out an injustice <laughs> and then we are trying to remedy the injustice 
And in fact, the court should have never granted that injunction in the first place. You know, the high court should have never granted that injunction in the first place. So I must say, though, that realism sets in very quickly for people. And it's kind of whatever that, yes, there was a brief moment of, you know, the, lo- the road is long ahead. But today, for now, let's raise our glasses. <laughs> <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> right, right. I mean, the small victories, uh, that's what make the, the larger. And sometimes it's only a small, small victories, but it kind of adds up to... to to a watershed moment where uh, democracy kind of lives up to its quote-unquote promise. (laughs) Which brings me to the question of thinking about the function of Supreme Courts. And I have heard a lot of arguments, especially looking at the way Supreme Courts operate in in other jurisdictions. I'm here talking specifically about the U.S. because it seems to be like one of the most politicized Supreme Courts I've seen (laughs) is the idea that are they even democratic institutions in the first place right how do, how how does a how do a small group of people determine the destiny of so many and because they are not directly elected per se right um and so how should we think about the supreme court in ghana and its its function in ghana's democracy and i'm i'm actually coming from a very critical perspective um in terms of the way it operates and the way it insulates itself, you know, um, in very particular ways. So I think that the, the tragedy of our Supreme Court is reflective of the formalism of law itself, you know, and 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 the way in which we we engage with the law. That it's it's always through a set of practices that tries first of all to minimize the the the, the factual context with which it is dealing and also the setting within which it is dealing. And that's why you get a lot of proceduralism in the courts and technicalities being focused on to the detriment of the bigger conversation itself. And one of the things I say is that even when you want to be technical and technicalism in the courts, you're forgetting that within the technical is the substantive. So let me give an example. Um, The courts in this particular case, and we might get to it, decides that the reason why I am not granted this injunction, or I'm questioning the injunction, is because it is indefinite, the period. But then doesn't give any reasons why, and doesn't say anything beyond that. Even though technically the law allows the judge to give an indefinite order, technically does. But the court says this because it, and it doesn't engage with that because actually what it wants to do, it wants to avoid discussing the conversation as to why that indefiniteness is, technic- is improper substantively, because it affects rights, you know, and you can't make determinations about people's rights without giving them a right of audience. And so that language is missing from it. And it does the barest minimum, if it can, to, to try to invoke that, you know. And I don't think that's the place of the Supreme Court. I think the Supreme Court has to, you know, discuss the big ideas and the big ticket questions and all of that. When you take, for instance, in the U.S., the Obergefell decision, which sort of allowed gay people to get to marry, it's all hinged on the word liberty. And what the judge asking himself, what does liberty mean? Our courts would never do that, you know? Like our, the Supreme Court even says sometimes, like you say, the spirit of the law, they ask, what is the spirit? I don't see a spirit. I see letters and paper. That's kind of the, that's the Supreme Court we get, you know? So even in, in places where people are frustrated about the position of the court's morals or whatever on people, in our case, it's like, see no evil, do nothing about the evil. Like I'd rather close my eyes to the, to the issue. Which um, is interesting. But yeah, I mean, do I you sense that our Supreme Courts have always been like this? 
And I'm just asking sort of a question of, of history. I, I sense that our Supreme Court has traditionally leaned this way. And very often, sometimes you have, you know, a brief moment where there are a couple, one, two, three judges who might try to push the institution in another direction. And, and it happens best when those persons are, are very articulate in the way they write and very flowery in their language and how they do that. In that way, they capture the imagination of legal thinkers and also of the court itself, which is often very, writes very porously. So when that happens, they then become impressed by the language of the progressive that they then cite them, uh, sometimes perfunctorily without, and then go on and hold stupid decisions. But that is what happens, right? Like you have instances where a very few judges happen, you know, like it drops in. And, and I've talked consistently about that decision in, in MPP versus Attorney General, uh, versus Inspector General of Police, as an example of when the courts were doing, you know, the bench was doing that. But even in that judgment, there's a couple of people who would make you blush by, by what they are writing. But the majority did carry. And I, I think we don't get that quite often in our courts. Uh, to give you an example, sorry, I know I'm going along with this. One of the decisions which is always criticized in Ghana is the Ray Akuto, where uh, some people have gone to the to the Supreme Court to, to challenge the Preventive Detention Act. And the court institutionalizes a very formalistic response. It says, I look at the Constitution, and it's the, bind, the human rights provisions are like the coronation oath of the Queen of England. Like, it's not binding, you know? And, and so for itself, it reconstructs like, I need to see Charles, and I saw May, and so for which reason, I can't do anything about it. But in another instance, the same courts will be saying, in certain instances, May means Charles. So then, then it disappears, right? Like, so, so that's what you have in dealing with situations as being sort of a, a rehearsed historical uh, ways of tendency of the courts. You know, I, I, you know, my dad is a lawyer, and one of the things I, I try to pay attention to the law just because of the way it's, it's become such an important kind of analytical framework, and the people who are allowed to speak are just the lawyers, right? Or people who are called pocket lawyers like Kukubaku. So one of the things I hear you saying is this idea of, um, you know, I was just reading around, just thinking about this question, and this idea of the textualism. Is the, am I right to say that's, that's kind of what you're hinting at with uh, the may and the shall? And... Yes, yes. I'm hinting a bit at textualism, but ours is even a dishonest textualism. Because even when the text leads us to a particular direction, we back away from it. Let me give you an example. In the Constitution, it says clearly that the, the human rights provisions in the are not the only one we contemplate. We intend to include any other human rights in, in, in every established democracy in the world, right? Like, that's textual. <laughs> that's what we say textually. But when we see that, like, we, nobody uses it. They're like, no. And then we back away from it. So ours is some sort of dishonesty even in textualism. It, it, the irony about discussing sometimes the courts is that it is rendered as if it's an apolitical institution without people's identities and politics and ideologies influencing <laughs> how they practice their textualism, right? And and which which parts of the constitution they decide is worth is worth pursuing um, as well. So this brings me to your tension, what you describe as a tension uh, with the decision, right? Uh, which is which is kind of summed up in the interesting fourth estate article titled Fix the country protesters win theoretical victory but suffer practical defeat. And indeed, you say, quote, Today, I have decided to pick up the pieces of my dishonesty because incorrect reasonings taint the soundness of every ruling and make them open to ridicule. But also, 
the knowledge that I was celebrating a decision that gave us pyrrhic victory, big words, <laughs> but had set out, but had set back our democracy, has become too burdensome for me to refuse to set down my thoughts on paper. Unquote. Could you kindly kind of speak to this tension you are kind of grappling with? So, you know, when when the news was broken to me that the court had ruled in our favor, it came with the backstory immediately, even before I tweeted. So even as I was putting that out, it was a strategic question as to, do I just talk about the fact that they quashed it, or do I immediately also talk about what was wrong with it? And I made a decision to go with the, just the fact that they quashed it. And I even used words I would never use in terms of describing the Supreme Court or any decision on the court, and said freedom. So it was calculated for a particular effect. Like it was a political, you know, statement that has continued to haunt me even as I, I put that there, you know. But, and this is what immediately was told to me. In the interactions in the Supreme Court, the judges were writing the decision to rule against us. They were. Like they were writing the order that, no, they were not going to grant it because in their case, the order has already expired. Why even in the court? You know, and sort of buying this sort of, fake argument about it had already lapsed on its own and we don't need to do anything. You guys are making, uh, you know, a deal out of something that there wasn't. But it was only when Justice, and Justice was arguing this, Justice Shremside, said to them that what you're doing by this ruling is that you would immediately limit judicial discretion terribly. And because anytime any judges make an order which they intend to be indefinite, everybody was entitled to construe it as lapsing under 10 days, after 10 days. And this is kind of what made them pause and do that. And so the knowledge that the only thing that got the court to do something is their worry about their own discretion being limited. It's the only reason why they even did this. It was very displeasing to me, you know? So that's kind of immediate, that immediate sense that I had, the tension I had before I even put just that part there. But I've always been wondering how can I talk about this without people saying that I was looking at the gift horse in its mouth or whatever the expression we use there is. Because... A lot of times in engaging with the court and people's understanding of the court, you have to be strategic about. One of the reasons why we decided that, even though they had given us one month ahead, we were not going to ask them for an abridgment of time to bring it forward is that we're going to get a split baby situation. They would give us that and let us argue it early and then rule against us on the substantive. And when that happens, it will be very difficult to convince people that there's something wrong with it. Because people would be like, you won one, you lost one. Why are you always looking to raise a problem when you have lost, Right. And so that's strategic, this thing that we continue to use to excuse judicial misbehavior was kind of something that I was, has been, was weighing on myself and I need, knew that I needed to sit down and actually write about it. But the way in which I wanted to write about it, and this is perhaps where even in my struggle, it gets a bit obtuse. So yeah, that's the beginning where I'm saying, I keep reminding that this is a legal article because, because I'm speaking to a particular legal profession which tends to be dismissive when they are not engaged in jargon, you know? And I don't want, especially as person mobilizing, to be that you are refusing to be legally honest and that you are using populist language to describe this. So I want to show you that, listen, I will get to that part for you, but I want, I want you to go through the pain of reading all this nonsense I have, which is actually quite the most important bit. And, and that's why I stick that whole thing at the back there, that only the, you know, the real strong world will get there. But the lawyers themselves, I want them to go through that torture of, dealing with that before they get right, to that right right and i mean i mean you wrote it on ghana law hub which is essentially the target audience are lawyers right if i'm correct right um but of course um everybody can read it <laughs> uh, as well please check out the second half of this discussion in the next episode music by ayande <laughs>